Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Sometimes I feel like I need a vacation. Sometimes I feel like Hey everybody, this is Chris Malanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. I'd be a Flintstone, now I'll tell you why. That's Bedrock Anthem by Weird Al Yankovic, a 1993 track from his album Alapalooza. It is a rare Weird Al song that parodies not just one, but two songs by the same artist, namely the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It starts with a riff on their 1992 number two pop hit, Under the Bridge, then segues into a reboot of the Chili's number one alt-rock hit, Give It Away all mashed up with lyrics about that classic cartoon about a Stone Age family, the Flintstones. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to catch up with listeners, and enjoy some trivia. And I'm delighted to welcome this month's special guest. In the opening paragraph of his new book, Nathan Rabin writes... About eight years ago, I received a direct message on Twitter from my childhood hero, Weird Al Yankovic, that changed my life. Al wrote that, of all the writers in the world, he had chosen me to tell his story, unquote. 
That book, 2012's Weird Al, the book, made Rabin one of the world's foremost Al (laughs) experts. And he's just released another book, The Weird Accordion to Al, that's winning raves from Al fans worldwide. Rabin is a former head writer of the AV Club, co-host of the Travolta Cage podcast, and the author of six books, including both of his books about Yankovic. Nathan Rabin, welcome to The Bridge. It is an honor to be here. Let's talk about your Weird Al fandom, which I have to imagine goes back quite some time, right? I mean, it has been my observation, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience, that each generation seems to discover Al in their own time, maybe when they hit a certain age. So when was your moment with Weird Al? Oh, definitely, definitely. Al has kind of a line about that, how every uh, critic's favorite Weird Al album, the best Weird Al album, is whatever was released when they were 12 years old. Totally. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm proud to say that I got in a little bit young. Uh, I remember, geez, the first three albums that I ever got that my dad bought for me, and these were album albums, records. Sure. Beautiful, beautiful pieces of vinyl were uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller, Huey Lewis and the New Sports, and Weird Al in 3D. Collectively, this set the bar so high that no other <laughs> albums could possibly meet it. And I mean that. I, I still think that In 3D is the best album uh, that Al has ever done. And then the very first al- uh, concert that I ever went to was Weird Al opening for the Monkees. Wow. And I went in there and I was primarily a, a Monkees fan, but my God, he blew the Monkees off stage. And that similarly set the bar so incredibly high that no other uh, concerts by non-Weird Al artists uh, could, could possibly match it. And then, yeah, I sort of write about this in in the book, but I had kind of a a giving tree relationship with Al, where every stage of my my life and my career, he was there. So when I started writing for the AV Club uh, in the late 90s, uh, I got to meet him backstage. Uh, That was a very, very, very exciting experience, you know. Uh, And then, yeah, he asked me to write his book uh, about 12 years later. And I was actually writing another book at the time about fish and insane clown posse. And I was a head writer of the AV Club. So I should not have written this book, but I could not say no uh, to Weird Al Yankovic. And then, uh, yeah, he was putting out a a box set, a squeeze box, a a 15-disc career-spanning box set, ended up winning the the Grammy uh, for Best Packaging. And it was so expensive that I thought, if I write a book about this, then I can, you know, write it all off of my taxes. And end up being this amazing, amazing (laughs) adventure that took three years to finish. But my God, I am so unbelievable happy and proud and he not only uh, wrote the introduction for it he also fact-checked it and he copy edited it uh, he was so he was so mortified by my grammar by all of my word crimes uh, that he offered his uh, services as a cunning linguist to help me distinguish what's proper English what a mensch uh, yeah I was very very lucky so every stage in my life uh, weird Al has been there for me that's amazing. There's so much in that I relate to, not least the fact that his live show is, is truly amazing. I'm embarrassed to okay. admit, I've seen it twice, but only in the last decade. And God, I've, I don't, I've rarely had so much fun as I have at those two shows. So in the episode, I talk not only about Weird Al, that's kind of the second half of my most recent Hit Parade episode, but I talk about antecedents to Al. I cited not just as backstory for Al, but really to talk about the history of novelty music on the charts in general. And among the people I point to are Spike Jones, Alan Sherman, Tom Lehrer, and of course, Dr. Demento, who was not a charting artist himself, but helped break people. How did Al synthesize all of these novelty music pioneers? 
Well, he kind of took what was best about each of them, and he learned from their sample, but he also learned what not to do. Uh, for example, Alan Sherman is a fascinating, fascinating figure. Huge. And that he was huge, like for a couple of years there. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Here Three number one albums, back to back to back in 1962 and 63. And then Alan Sherman, he kind of uh, lost it all through this Dionysian excess. You know, he's just a very careless man with how he conducted his career, with how he conducted his personal life. Uh, he ended up dying very, very early. And I think Al kind of learned from that. He learned... Uh, what not to do. He learned to be careful, to be cautious, to be very deliberate and meticulous in how he uh, sort of has planned and executed his career. He learned so much from Dr. Demento. I mean, you look at Al, and he's a TV guy, obviously. That's the source of a lot of his uh, sort of biggest hits, his his most, most popular songs. But he's also a radio guy. And he has an A&R's mind and an A&R sense of not only what will be successful, but what will endure. You know, if you look at Al's career, like, he's only really ever parodied a non-hit once. Uh, and that was a song, Ruthless People, by Mick Jagger. Uh, and you can know that it's not a hit because it's Mick Jagger solo song. Uh, it's not a Rolling Stones song. <laughs> right. So that's part of it. And also, I mean, you just talk about, you know, stuff like Bedrock Anthem. You think about, you know, not just the Flintstones, uh, which obviously is this huge thing, which has, you know, enormous, enormous popularity and cultural resonance. But it was well on the way to being a movie. Good point. And also, I mean, like Frank Zappa, I think there's uh, that sense of outrageousness, button pushing, provocation. So what he did was he kind of took all of these different uh, influences and, and just kind of created this sort of super beast, you know, sort <laughs> of like the the perfect the perfect novelty artist. And I almost feel bad calling him a novelty artist because I feel like that is uh, limiting. And I feel like what he's done over the course of his career is he's transcended that in a way that almost no other artists have. Yeah, I would agree. I'm glad you talked about how Al evolved over time a little bit because I wanted to touch on that as well. Um, one of my favorite Weird Al moments was when he guested on The Simpsons. He did a guest voice on The Simpsons. I think he did it a couple times. And I, uh, if I remember correctly, oh, yeah, yeah. it was it was his first yeah. right. It was his first appearance. And it is revealed in the episode that Homer, of course, is a Weird Al fan, and that Homer has been sending Weird Al his own uh, Weird Al style parody songs, and all of them are food related. Did you ever get the parody songs I sent you? <sighs> yes. Which one was better? Living La Pizza Loca or another one bites the crust. They were pretty much the same, Homer. <laughs> the riff being, of course, that Al has done himself so many food-related songs. But you, in some of your work, have identified that Al has actually thematically moved decade by decade. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Oh, definitely. I think one of the things that makes uh, sort of Al unique and, and fascinating is I feel like he's kind of a, a representation of the monoculture of this time in in, our, in American history when people knew the same TV shows and the same movies and the same songs. Uh, so he kind of, in the 1980s, when Al emerged, uh, sort of his main themes were television and food, you know, that food was literally all he ate the entire decade. Um, <laughs> and yeah, in the 1980s, nothing was bigger than television. You know, television told us who we were. Television sold things to us. Uh, television, you know, gave us the secrets to life. Uh, and yeah, during that time, that was kind of Al's obsession. Right. And then in the 90s, uh, sort of as he got older, uh, he his sort of stuff became a little more calculating, uh, a little bit more opportunistic. And that was kind of his 
movie age where you had songs about Forrest Gump, you had songs about Jurassic Park, you had most famously The Saga Begins, which is a beloved, hilarious song about one of the worst things of all time, which is the plot <laughs> and characters of The Phantom Menace. And then, you know, as the aughts approached, that kind of began his computer age. You know, sort of television was supplanted by the internet. Uh, YouTube replaced MTV. And as a result, Al's reigning obsession became uh, computers and technology and the internet and how it simultaneously makes our lives better and worse and a whole lot more ridiculous. Uh, and yeah, that's kind of been the source of a lot of his best and most resonant sort of late period hits like White and Nerdy, like it's all about the Pentium. I'm down with Bill Gates, I call money for short i phone them up at home and i'll make them do my tech support it's all about the videos so yeah as culture has changed al has changed with it you know and as that simpsons joke also indicates this is the gag right is that all of homer's ideas for parody songs are terrible but it makes the point that truly witty parody is actually hard so what do you think makes al's parodies in particular so effective and exceptional I feel like with Al, there's always more going on than just what's on the layer or what's on the on the surface. I mean, take Amish Paradise, uh, for example. Uh, part of what makes it such a, a great song and such a funny song and such a subversive song is that it's about not just a, a powerful song, an important song, but two powerful and important songs. The Coolio song uh, that it's parodying and then the Stevie Wonder song uh, that that song is sampling. And again, you kind of look at a Russian doll element of Al where he's parroting something that's sampling something that's referencing some other thing so again that's fascinating to me so you kind of have this uh, sort of gospel majesty to a very very silly song that fundamentally is about religious hypocrisy which is about arrogance which is about you know the faithful uh having this piety that's also ridiculous you know and that's also uh self-absorbed and arrogant it's hard work and sacrifice Living in an Amish paradise We sell quilts at discount price Living in an Amish paradise A local boy kicked me in the butt last week I just smiled at him and I turned the other cheek And I feel like the thing we haven't really talked about that's at the core of his appeal is nostalgia. You know, I feel like a lot of people they discover Al when they're very, very young and they have enormous nostalgia from that period in their lives, you know, but there's that double nostalgia because it's not just for the songs that Al did, it's for the songs that he parodied, you know, he's overlapped with so many, you know, sort of huge cultural things, whether it's Star Wars, with Jurassic Park, it's Yoda. I mean, even like, you know, even uh, Buckingham Blues, like a very silly, you know, kind of album cut from his first uh, CD, like that has a new resonance because there's a whole new drama going on uh, with the royal. You know, so no matter what's happening in pop culture, there is a Weird Al song that references it very, very uh, directly, almost to an uncanny degree. Let us not forget that when he did I Lost on Jeopardy, that was actually a nostalgia play, too, because Jeopardy at that moment hadn't been rebooted with Alex Trebek. So he was calling back to the, you know, Don Pardo and Art Fleming version of the show. There's there's nostalgia uh, there, too. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, and you look at like George of the Jungle, uh, which, you know, uh, again, that's so true to kind of Weird Al and his aesthetic, but when I heard it. 
uh, on, I believe, the Dare to Be Stupid album, I was like, oh, this is a song that Weird Al created. And it was almost like by covering that song, he was like willing uh, sort of a movie adaptation into existence. And by alchemizing all these different things, he's been able to create a lasting career in a field where everything is supposed to be ephemeral. Um, so speaking of Al and his career, let's talk about a little bit about the charts and where his career could go from here if it goes anywhere now that he's entering his 60s. I guess what I find interesting about Al possibly entering retirement is the idea that there's never been a better moment for an artist who paints with his, you know, brushes and canvas, right? Yeah. Video makes things go viral snark and wit and little quirky things right up to the song that's number one as we record this the box by roddy rich you know quirky things make songs go to number one now do you think al is thinking about this he certainly thought about it in 2014 when mandatory fun became his first and thus far only number one album do you think there's a place for al in the chart world of the 2020s I definitely think there's a place for Al in the chart world of the 2020s. I think, again, uh, to go back to a recurring theme, uh, Al has executed through with incredible care and craft and meticulousness. And I feel like the longer that he's away, the more pressure uh, there is on, on, on uh, an album. Uh, Al has joked that every album is basically a comeback album because uh, he's either been away for a little bit or he didn't get a hit on the last one. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely feel like there's a place for him. I feel like he's in this end enviable situation where he doesn't need to release new music to tour. He doesn't need to release new music to uh, do talk shows. You know, he has this really nice, really lovely life. And he also has this uh, formula for crafting albums. And usually when you talk about formula in terms of entertainment, it's in a negative way. It's in a, in a pejorative sense. And with Al, it works. Like he's figured out a way to make albums to retain uh relevant and popular and funny and and important um and so yeah i feel like for him to release a new album there has to be a batch of new pop songs that he really connects with uh that he really engages with i, I think I, I spoke in the book about how when it comes to the pop world and the people he parodies he's like matthew mcconaughey and dazed and confused you know where he gets older and they stay the same age <laughs> uh so you're talking about a 60 year old grammy winning legend having to listen to obnoxious pop songs and thinking do is there something here that i can grapple on to is there something that's funny is there an angle is there a perspective is there a tack that i can take can i make this about burritos some way um <laughs> so yeah so there's so many different things going on so i hope to hell that he puts out another album i also feel like uh when i sent him uh the weird according to al book uh, i i wanted to impress him <laughs> with how grammatically correct it was and he was <laughs> like oh my god this is horrifying i'm gonna take several days to go and uh fix this for you an ostensible professional writer and my fear is that he was gonna take that time and like go to the woods and record his masterpiece um, but <laughs> <laughs> He's like, instead, I'm going to fix this moron's commas. So, yeah, I hope that I, I single-handedly did not prevent him from releasing a comeback album. But I agree. I think there would be an enormous audience for, for it. Uh, I feel like, you know, he was received uh, with 2014's uh, album as kind of a conquering hero. And I feel like his stature and, and his prestige and the, the, uh, has only increased uh, in the ensuing years. 
Well, I certainly hope, Nathan, that you haven't uh, single-handedly prevented Al from creating his next masterpiece. But uh, I hope not. I would feel very, very guilty. You've you've certainly given him plenty to do, at, at the very least fixing your word crimes. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much, Nathan, for joining me for this episode of The Bridge. And can you tell us where folks can find you online? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, you can find me at Nathan Raven's Happy Place, uh, which is my website. I devote all of my time and energy to it. It was kind of the incubator from which uh, the Weird According to Al came from. It's NathanRaven.com, N-A-T-H-A-N-R-A-B-I-N.com. And then I've got uh, the Travel the Cage podcast uh, with my uh, friend Clint Worthington, where we talk about all of John Travolta and Nicolas Cage's movies in order, uh, which is a pretty is, amazing, pretty fun, pretty crazy experience so far. I, I just listened to the episode where you guys talked about Urban Cowboy uh, yesterday, and uh, I must say it was very entertaining. All right. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining me on The Bridge. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now comes the time in every Hit Parade The Bridge episode where we do some trivia. And joining me on the line from Bellingham, Washington, is Neva Coates. Hey, Neva. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Very excited. My understanding is you saw my 2019 live Hit Parade show in Seattle, Washington. Is that right? Yes. We made a whole day of it. So you were at the live show, and at all my live shows, I asked live trivia questions, and people from the audience answer those trivia questions. Why didn't you answer one of my trivia questions? Well... I didn't really have the confidence at the time. I was a bit shy, and it was fun, but frustrating because I knew almost all the answers, so that prompted me to join Slate, And but it was just a lovely evening. It was a lovely evening, but I must say that particular live show, the Seattle live show, I think only something like three out of my nine contestants got the questions right. I wish we had asked you a question because I would have liked to get, you know, one more correct answer that night. Yes, yes. The one that stands out for some reason is John Lennon because the person up there got it wrong. I'm like, oh, I knew that one. Which reminds me to mention, you're now a Slate Plus member, so on these Hit Parade The Bridge episodes, you can be a trivia contestant. And this is the moment in every episode where I remind our listeners that while this Bridge episode is available to all Hit Parade subscribers, we only open our trivia rounds to Slate Plus members. So if you are a member and would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. That's slate.com slash hit parade sign up.
So, Neva, as you probably remember on all of our prior Bridge episodes, we're going to ask you three trivia questions. The first is going to be a callback to our most recent full-length episode of Hit Parade, and the next two are going to be a preview of the next episode. Are you ready for some trivia? I am ready. All right, here we go. Question one. Last month, we talked about several serious rock titans who scored their biggest chart hit with a novelty single. Which of these legends did not hit their peak on the Hot 100 with a one-off comedy hit? A. Bob Dylan B. Chuck Berry C. Johnny Cash or D. Bo Diddley Let's see. That has to be A. Bob Dylan And you are correct. The correct answer is A, Bob Dylan. While some consider his 1966 hit, Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, a novelty, it only spent one week at number two on the Hot 100. The year before, his Like a Rolling Stone spent two weeks at number two. But... Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash, and Bo Diddley all scored their biggest pop hits with My Dingaling, A Boy Named Sue, and Say Man, respectively. Excellent. You're one for one, Neva. Ready for question two? Ready. Here we go. Question two. Which of these artists, all rock and roll Hall of Fame inductees, strung together the most consecutive number one hits in Hot 100 history? A. The Supremes. B, The Beatles, C, The Bee Gees, or D, Whitney Houston? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I just gut instinct, I'm going with D, Whitney Houston. Your gut is correct. The correct answer is D, Whitney Houston. Between October 1985 and April 1988, Whitney strung together seven straight number ones on the Hot 100. When she scored the seventh of those chart toppers, she broke out of a tie with the Beatles and the Bee Gees with six apiece. Excellent. You're running the table so far, Neva. You ready for question three? Ready. Here we go. Question three. After her 1980s peak, Whitney Houston continued to score chart hits into the 21st century. What was her last top 10 hit on the Hot 100? A. I Have Nothing B. Exhale, Shoop Shoop C. My Love Is Your Love or D. The Star Spangled Banner Um, the only one I know of those is D. The Star Spangled Banner because we just had the Super Bowl, and that's where she sang it, and she knocked it out of the park, so D. And you knocked it out of the park. The correct answer is D, the Star-Spangled Banner. First recorded for the 1991 Super Bowl, Houston's now legendary recording of our national anthem returned to the Hot 100 after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, when it reached a new peak of number six. For the record, Exhale, Shoop Shoop was her last number one in 1995, and My Love Is Your Love was her last top five hit in 2000. A perfect score. Phenomenal, Neva. You must be thrilled. I am thrilled. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> now, I understand that even though you have now run a perfect score, you have the chance to increase your perfection by stumping me with a trivia question. Do you have a question for me? Yes, I do. 
Whitney Houston's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner was the first version of the song to be certified platinum or to hit the Billboard Top 10. But one honor Whitney's national anthem does not hold, it isn't the longest. Who boasts the record for the longest version of the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl? Is it A, Natalie Cole in 1994, B, Faith Hill in 2000, C, Alicia Keys in 2013, or D, Adina Menzel in 2015. Wow. Did not see that question coming. <laughs> and my chart knowledge is not going to help here, so I have to take a guess. That's what I did. Yeah. And maybe because I have her on the brain right now, because I just watched the Grammy Awards a couple weeks ago, I'm just going to go ahead and guess C, Alicia Keys. Correct. Her rendition on the piano clocked in at 155 seconds. Oh, say can you see? Whitney's memorable version lasted 116 seconds. Which is remarkable because a detail I'm going to talk about in our next episode is that they added uh, one beat per measure to Whitney's version. So her version is in 4-4, whereas our national anthem originally is in waltz time, which is 3-4. So in theory, Whitney should have taken longer, but go figure, Alicia Keys was actually longer. Well, Neva, it was a good day for both of us, you and me, because we got all of our trivia questions right. We can both hold our heads up high. And uh, I just want to thank you for being on Hit Parade the Bridge. Absolutely my pleasure. Can't wait to hear the next episode. So, as the last two questions of that trivia round indicated, our next full-length episode is going to be about Whitney Houston and Chart Crossover. This month, February 2020, is the eighth anniversary of Whitney Houston's death. And, notably, she is about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's been a lot of biographical material produced about Whitney since her passing, including two back-to-back documentaries about her story. And frankly, none of this biographical material, I feel, has done justice to her amazing chart feats. Not just the feats themselves, but what they say about her career. These chart phenomena say as much about Whitney's relationship to fame, her fans, and race as the more lurid details of her biography do. So in our next Hit Parade, we're going to walk through her amazing chart records, including some that I have not seen chronicled in any biographical information about her, and talk about what it tells us about Whitney Houston's amazing career. My thanks again to Nathan Rabin for joining me for this episode of The Bridge. And this episode was produced by Asha Saluja. I'm Chris Melanfi. Keep on marching on the one. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.